0: Welcome to Tech Chairs, a new podcast all about sport and technology.
1: Because technology is the single biggest force shaping modern sport. But how did we get to this point?
0: So in this first series, we'll try to answer that with the help of innovators and experts from all over the sports that we love
1: so much. So whether you're a fan, work in the industry or are simply tech curious, this is the series for you. Hello from Tech Chairs with me, Rebecca Hopkins and
0: me, John Inverdale,
1: And this is where we look at how sports and technology have changed each other over the past few decades.
0: To the point where this year's Sports Technology Awards are in New York City for the first time, bigger, brassier and bolder than ever.
1: And this time we're considering broadcast in all its forms, from the dark ages,
0: John and I of the
1: vintage that remembers when there were only a few channels,
0: to today where you can binge and stream to your heart's content. And 20 years ago, Bruce Springsteen may have bemoaned the fact that there were only 57 channels with nothing on. Now there's 5,700 catering to every whim and desire.
1: Well, over the past four decades, Paul Davies has seen all those changes. First as a senior figure within BBC Sport and now as a head of media at the All England Club, which stages Wimbledon.
0: Well, Dave Roberts, formerly of ESPN and Fox and now an OTT consultant, was the man who brought us Borough TV, the first ever football OTT channel. So, Dave,
2: were you a visionary (laughs) Uh, John Rebecca, I'm as, as much of a tech dinosaur as you two guys are. I remember radio and TV when it was terrestrial broadcasting. We had four channels, and in radio it was either the one independent station or the local BBC station or national. So I subscribe to those days. I remember those days. Me being a visionary, I don't think so. It was just tech was coming, and we took advantage of it. So,
0: you say tech was coming. What tech was coming that made you go right? Because, because if you asked anybody which was the first football club to have its own TV channel, they would say Barcelona, Manchester United, whoever it might be. They wouldn't say, with all due respect,
2: Middlesbrough. So, what was it that you saw coming that nobody did? What was coming originally with Borough TV, it was the proliferation of, of cable channels, cable TV so each local region was getting a cable broadcaster. And I think at the time, I, I remember, and I still remain friends to this day, with the managing director of, of the guy who was running the, uh, the T-side cable operation where I'm from. And he was telling me from an internet perspective they could only uh, offer 128K, which was not much faster than the old traditional telephone dialer. But what it did give is it, it gave a cable TV platform to each region. And that's what we looked at and thought... You know there's this public channel channel number eight, which was offered around the u k at the time uh, which was for public broadcasting. There was nobody in a in a position whatsoever to be able to capitalize on that, and that's what we focused in on. We thought right let's use this available platform let's produce some TV shows let's do it differently. None of us had the uh, the amount of investment that your know, traditional TV broadcast networks would have. So we did it on the cheap. And um, you know, we've seen that grow to the point now where fan, fan groups can have their own TV channels on you know, digital platforms, YouTube, things like that. So today is a long way off where we started.
1: Dave, at what point did you have an inkling that you had really hit on something that was potentially industry changing? I don't think we did,
2: to be honest. I thought we were just presented with an opportunity and started thinking outside of the box to a certain extent of how can we use this? How useful could this be? And we were looking at it purely from... From a use perspective, we weren't looking at it from a, an industry perspective at the time. And now what we've seen with, obviously, the, the amalgamation of all the the smaller independent operators, whether it be cable or or then we moved in and, and transitioned to digital. We were doing surrounding Middlesbrough Football Club on Borough TV, which was pre-recorded content uh, that progressed to live content. Is what you're seeing today...
0: Obviously, technology moves at at a great pace, and sometimes it's the human beings that don't move at the same pace with it, whereas nowadays, every single sport, every single club is falling over themselves to invite TV crews inside the dressing room and everything else. What did the Middlesbrough hierarchy think when you approached them all those years ago and said, I've got this idea for a a TV station devoted to the club and the club alone?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it was funny. I think, first and foremost, they were looking at it with trepidation, thinking, how much is this going to cost us? How much are we going to be asked to pay towards this? TV's expensive. But once we got over that conversation, they were embracing of it. They looked at this and thinking, this is this is a new opportunity. I'm sure there were the commercial eyes were looking at this to think, you know, is it monetizable? so very positive and they opened the doors wide open we our first studio was built it was a temporary studio built in the press room uh, when it wasn't being used on match days and that's where we'd uh, we'd present tv programs from that's where we'd record sessions from so uh, yeah i think outside of is this going to cost a huge amount of money then um, then then it was very positive
1: dave in your career being both poacher and gamekeeper insofar as you've worked within broadcasters, you've worked within clubs. Because I've heard so many clubs say, or so many people say, that clubs aren't maximising their rights to the full potential, sometimes because of the way they've negotiated the TV rights with broadcasters. What's your take on that? What kind of advice would you be giving to clubs to actually squeeze the pips more on their commercial assets through the medium of broadcast?
2: It's an interesting question, and it depends how you frame it. Are you looking just from the UK perspective or are you looking from a, a worldwide perspective? Because there is huge opportunity worldwide where media rights are not being maximized. And that's probably around 80-85% of the world right now. In the UK and the big sure country sporting countries of Europe, you are seeing better performance. So you are seeing the likes of the Premier League leading the way. You are seeing the likes of a Formula One leading the way bundesliga la liga the media rights are being maximized to a certain extent outside of that there's huge opportunity we are seeing uh, i'm I'm having conversations with football organizations because football is one of my specialisms as is motorsports and we're seeing a lack of knowledge a lack of understanding a lack of education from a commercial perspective so what would i say it depends on where we're operating here. Data is hugely important. So is a sports organisation removing data digital streaming rights. Bring data out of this because data itself now is, it's not far being short of as being as valuable to your traditional TV rights.
1: And looking at how fans consume the output, to what extent do you think fans are shaping the way broadcast takes place, or are fans more receptive and responding to what they're being given?
2: No, I think now the fans are the driving force at how sporting properties are delivered, how the use of of media rights is determined. Uh, I think we saw, what, five, six, maybe seven years ago now, second screen viewing overtook first screen viewing. So the traditional way to watch sport is now in the minority. So fans... They like to have two screens side-by-side, if they are, and many do still watch TV, but they like to have their second screen for for maybe a stats feed or keeping an eye on another game or, to a certain extent, embellishing what they already have and enhancing the experience they have on the main screen. Or consumption has gone across to, to digital platforms, whether it is OTT platforms or streaming. So the landscape is completely different now to how it was just five years ago. It's going to change completely again. And you know, I look at FIFA as, a, as an example. They they launched the their digital platform, their fan-facing platform, through the middle of last year. And they were streaming the World Cup live into Brazil on it, as well as having a broadcast partner in Brazil. So the way content is being consumed is changing hugely, and it is predominantly fan-driven.
0: Great stuff. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. And from the first ever football streaming service to initially a more traditional form of broadcasting and now being in the vanguard of media development, let's talk to Paul Davis at the All England Club. So, Paul, was was media, was broadcasting so simple in the 80s?
3: I wouldn't say it was simple, John. I mean, I think it's all evolved, hasn't it? I think wherever you were in that stage of your life, you found it quite a technical challenge. Um and you sort of look back to the early pioneers all those years ago, what they were doing with very limited resources as to where we are now, I think it all all walks of life. Uh, you know, things get more complex, and whether it gets better, I'm not certain. I think certainly the experience of consuming content and watching programs and the beautiful pictures and the wonderful sound we have now is, is, is to be absolutely admired. But um, it was definitely more simpler because the technology – was less complex, um, but the solutions were that much trickier because you didn't have the, 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 the digital age wasn't there. So it was literally sort of plugging up, you know, miles and miles of cable and working with two-inch tape. I remember my first experience at the Olympic Games in 1988. It was, I think it was Ginny Leng and Des Lynham had led to this, what we call an off-tape moment where you sort of turn around a performance and we had to cross-run between two two-inch tapes Uh, We had to put a crowd cutaway in the middle so there wasn't a jump cut. And you're doing completely blind, literally cutting from one great big machine. Looked like something out of Doctor Who to the other. And I think we actually spun the tape rather than doing it in real time. And Des had to pick up and say, well, you probably realised that was off tape, but Ginny did go on to win the gold medal. So, no, perhaps it wasn't as slick as it is today.
0: But we're so sophisticated now that when we look back at... The Soul Olympics, or whatever it might be, and we look at the graphics, which look like you know, you'd given them somebody in, somebody in Form 3 and asked them to go and do it. It's very easy to be a bit supercilious, but actually, there were people who were pushing the envelope even in those days and have done continuously.
3: I think that's right, John. I mean, I I remember my first experience was on the wonderful grandstand, which is in 1988 again, and the old TC5, which you'll remember extremely well. I remember John Tidy and his Worms' team literally putting up, you know, sort of magnetic numbers onto a a whiteboard to give the sort of racing betting odds and and football results. And it was was from a different time, but it, it worked. It was informative. Um, but it's interesting how the use of the screen has changed. Obviously, the actual size and ratio of the screen has changed. So we're always thinking about how you can make best use of it. I do get a bit perplexed and slightly angst with the amount of the screen that's taken up. If you look at 100 recently and how much room they used for the graphics on either side, it was a wonderful brand, but it took up so much of the real estate uh, and the actual imagery you were trying to look at. So I think as we we look to add more graphics and, and information and data, and we're so data rich now, aren't we? And we're certainly looking at that at Wimbledon with, with the likes of Tennis Viz, for example, where we're getting so much data. I mean, we, we used to analyze the first and the last shot. We're now analyzing every shot in a tennis match. We're tracking the players and the ball. And we're getting this all this data that we're having to, not having to, but being encouraged to use to make it a richer experience for people to consume.
1: And it's interesting, Paul, because you say about the being encouraged to use, use that data, you've obviously got younger fans who like first, second, third screens, all the data. How do you balance satisfying the needs of them with those of, of your older fans who are possibly more purist?
3: That's a good question. I think what you have to do is is cater for everybody. And I think what you try and do is put the decisions a little bit in the consumer, put it in their hands. So literally providing different feeds. We're looking all the time now, again, the use of technology and how we can not just provide one linear feed, but kind of layering it up. So clearly, there's the traditional television output where we're kind of giving the, the, the best seat in the house, if you like, But even as recently as last year, we're putting, um, you know, we've always been very innovative at Wimbledon in terms of, you know, it was even the first color television, first widescreen, first streaming. Last year we did 360, so we were having 360 coverage of Centre Court on a completely separate feed. But I think if you can use technology to kind of layer the experience, and if, if you want more statistics, I mean, let's not get into betting, but, you know, there's so much layering of different content you can put on a screen now people aren't tuning in generally are they for a five-hour tennis match and watching that all the way through Uh, and that's sad but people want to consume it different ways so we're having to provide the content for people in different ways and and chunk it up as i call it but i think if you can put that control into the hands of the consumer and they can select if they want a different layer of graphics or information then they can do so
0: could you pinpoint Two or three things that have happened in the last 35, 40 years that you've been involved in television which really moved the coverage of sport on in a televisual way.
3: I think one of the biggest ones has to be technology that has answered... The biggest question in any sport, and I think you can pick on a couple of examples. I would absolutely pick out cricket as technology really answering that question, whether that 's snicko, whether it 's Hawkeye. I mean, what is the one question you want to get answered in cricket? Was he out? was she out um and that you know people are accepting that as 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 default in tennis. we have it now, partly through the pandemic. Um, hawkeyes come in in terms of live hawkeye where we've got rid of lines judges so we persevere with them here at wimbledon we rather like them so we're not we have no plans in that direction at the moment um and it's quite strange to watch a tennis match without lines people there's no longer you know points contested there's no longer the wonderful McEnroe. if you think they're wonderful McEnroe moments of contesting a call because it's de facto it's it's fact it's in or it's out so you know, I think there are still some unanswered questions. I, you know, you, you'll you be watching very closely the Six Nations, John. The unanswered question still for me in rugby, is the ball down or not? Surely there must be some sort of x-ray device that could tell us if that ball has touched the ground or not.
1: And Paul, again, with that whole thing about technology has elevated sports entertainment credentials on many ways. I mean, With the Hawkeye calls, you you get crowd participation with something like that. Are there any other global events who you look at and you think, do you know what, they do that particularly well? Or have you ever seen something done in a different sport and then brought it in-house and refined it?
3: Yeah, one has to be a little cautious. Um, what we do at Wimbledon in terms of the traditions and what we feel is right. I mean, again, if we if we pick on American sports, I just think the way that the officials communicate you look at american football i just think that's fantastic i mean you know you're still watching you know we're we're seeing week in week out that the issues with var and the poor communication both at home and watching in the stadium i mean sometimes a it takes an awful long time but the communication of what's going on is not that clear beyond the decision itself so i just think watching an nfl match and and you know, the clarity of the communication from the referee is great. And the, you know, the, the, the audience get it straight away.
1: Paul, we can't possibly let you you go from this broadcast without bringing you into our GOAT debate. So the greatest, yes, the greatest technology of all time. Um, so in our butt, is it a GOAT? Do you have a contribution you'd like to share with us, please?
3: Gosh, well, listen, I'm sitting here at Wimbledon today, and in 1968, in this this very venue at SW19, Colour Television was trialed for the very first time on BBC2. And there was a Channel 2 controller called David Attenborough, who decided to use Wimbledon as the very first trial for Colour Television, and it was pretty successful. So that would definitely be my goat for the Sports Technology Award.
1: Oh, well, in that instance, if David Attenborough likes it and you like it, I'm not sure we can contest whether that's a goat or not. I think that's probably a slam dunk. Paul, thank you so, so much. That was fascinating.
0: Thank you. Well, so many areas we haven't covered, not least how the broadcasting and streaming of sport has led to this explosion in sports betting, although Paul did allude to that. And technology's role in that is obviously going to be crucial. That's
1: for another time, I think. But before we go, please do send us your thoughts as to the greatest technology moment in sport. Do so via email techchairs at
0: sportstechgroup.org or tweet us at sportstechgroup using the hashtag sportstechgoat.
1: And just to say, if you want to listen to all the previous episodes, then they cover a whole variety of subjects, from sneakers to smartwatches. And there are a few fascinating history lessons in there too.
0: There sure are. Next time we're going really high tech to the world of Formula One, spacecraft on the circuits of the world. We'll see you then. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode of Tech Chairs. We hope you found it informative,
1: thought-provoking, entertaining. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to stay up to date with all things sport tech, be sure to subscribe. You can follow us on Apple, Spotify and all good podcast channels.
0: And if you have any feedback, suggestions or just want to say hello, contact us on Twitter at Sport tech Group, LinkedIn, the STA Group or by email techchairs at sportstechgroup.org.
1: Don't forget, if you're posting on social, our hashtags are techchairs and sportstechgoat.